Hi, hello there. Uh, my name's Jada, and welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard for the second installment where we discuss Black history and true crime. This week, we will be focusing on Black history, specifically the community of Amber Valley. Now, if you don't know how things are done here, we look at everything from a decolonial, very critical lens, and there is no propaganda, no propaganda. We're not looking to uplift and praise the Canadian government or anything like that. It's very much honest and real and genuine to a Black experience. Okay, so this case is obviously about Black people migrating and relocating, but I want it to be super 100% clear, even if I do use the word settle when referring to Black people. Black people are not settlers. Black people, a lot of Black people came to Canada and America through enslavement, and it was, of course, it's enslavement, so it was forced. There was no choice, which by default makes them not settlers. So like I said, this week we are talking about Amber Valley, and let's get into it. So Amber Valley was an isolated Black community founded in Alberta in 1910, just north of Athabasca, two hours north of Edmonton specifically. It was the largest community of Black people until around the 1930s when some larger communities started to form. But this means that Black folks are not a recent addition to the country like so many people think. Not all Black people who are here have come through recent immigration. There have been Black people in Canada, specifically in Alberta, for at least 111 years and counting which is a lot longer than people like to realize. So when you're ignorantly asking all Black people, where are you from? Like, maybe don't do that. Maybe question why you do that. So as I stated before, a lot of the family started to migrate um, in 1910 or around that time. As early as 1907, they were recorded emigrating from Oklahoma, Texas, which specifically East Central Oklahoma. Many were seeking a new life away from recently passed Jim Crow segregationist laws and overall racism and violence that their lives were faced with every time they left their homes. Of course, they did not know that they would be coming to so-called Canada and receiving the same amount of racism. It would just look different. So folks were specifically fleeing from Oklahoma, and this is extremely important to remember when hearing the rest of this case study, but... In 1907, Oklahoma passed a series of extremely racist and harmful state laws. So many folks were fleeing, like I stated before, Jim Crow conditions, which included but were not limited to being denied the right to vote, refused entry to public places, segregated schools. There were Jim Crow work and depot laws, as well as the grandfather clause, which is the part that prohibited blacks from voting and enforced segregation further. Uh, these laws communicated to the public that black people are less than they are subpar and they are inferior so whatever harm comes to them does not matter they're not really worth anything anyways from a government perspective simply because they were black so a series of lynchings broke out after these these laws were passed and it quickly became increasingly more unsafe for black people um, black individuals were hunted and then their dead bodies were paraded around like some sort of twisted prize there was one incident in my research that I was horrified to hear of, but felt it was important to share. There was a mob that lynched a woman named Laura Nelson and her 13-year-old son in 1911. And 1911 is again a significant year, so remember that year later on. So Gilbert Williams, a man whose father was one of the first to settle in the Amber Valley area, um, the reason that he decided to leave Oklahoma was after a night out at his friends, they were, you know, walking back home 
and they heard some commotion and when Gilbert's dad turned, he looked and saw that the Ku Klux Klan was lynching his friend nearby. Immediately, he went and got money from his sister. He took his brother and they left because they had a gut feeling that if they stuck around, they would be next. At the same time that all of this chaos is ensuing in Oklahoma and other parts of the states, um, ads were being placed in American newspapers by the Canadian government targeting new immigrants. They were not targeting black people at all, but that's what they got. The migration came in as a result of the Canadian government's offer of free land, or $10 per acre of land, in the West, specifically Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, per the Dominion's Land Policy or Dominion's Land Act. So what is the Dominion's Land Act? Right? Like, what is this? Why is it so significant? So basically, it was a federal law that came into place on April 14th, 1872. But I want to note that active colonization was occurring long before this date. Um, this, this Canadian law was modeled based on the Dominion's Land Act that the USA, America, Big Brother America, had passed only 10 years prior. It gave way for others to come in and settle upon stolen land of the West in Canada. This law specifically was created to pave the way for others to come in and colonize or settle upon stolen land of the West. So there were many companies that came in and took an advantage. There were many companies that came in and took advantage of this law, such as Hudson's Bay, varying religious groups. There were municipalities. There were, of course, individuals, primarily railway construction and other colonization companies. This act also set aside lands for reserves but there were no reserves set aside for metis communities but i also i just want to note that this is such an ironic and ridiculous concept to steal land and then reserve part of said land to return to the group you just stole it from like you're doing some type of favor like you're really doing something just ridiculous to me there was also land set aside to become national parks through an amendment made in 1883 I, why that was a priority, I don't know. I Beats me. <laughs> From 1870 to 1930, which is the year that the act was repealed and the land was transferred to provincial control rather than federal control, there were approximately 625,000 land patents issued. Of course, with all of these land patents being issued, they would be bringing thousands of people into the country. The policies varied but folks who were considered eligible candidates to move in and move forward with British colonization would pay $10 to grant them three years to build a livable residence, clear the land for farming, and they must farm a certain area of said land yearly. Once the government decided that progress was made on their quarter section, then the settler would receive ownership of land and was eligible to purchase more. The government also had the grounds to take back the land at any time and give it away to whoever else they saw fit. As lands were sold under this dominion, indigenous communities, of course, were not consulted. They were not asked for their opinions. They were just seen as another obstacle to overcome in order to build the country that the government wanted to build. So, of course, with this influx of people, uh, black folks were coming and the government did not expect this. So Amber Valley was one of several communities that black folks decided to relocate and build community in after being freed from enslavement. It was the furthest north out of all the communities at this time. 
So between 1909 and 1911, there were approximately 1,000 to 1,500 uh, freed slaves, freed black folks, who made their way to Canada seeking a better life. They established communities in Amber Valley, which is also known as Pine Creek, Junkins, which is also known as Wildwood, and Keystone, which is also now known as Breton. Prejudice, racism, discrimination, segregation, and violence was also prevalent in Canada, but it was thought to be better than the harsh experiences that they had had in the States and the harsh experiences that they were currently facing with the mass lynchings that were ongoing in Oklahoma. So by 1910, 300 freed black folks and their families had moved to Amber Valley and decided to create their own community. So there is this mindset that Canada somehow was equivalent to freedom. And this positive mindset was stemming from the fact that Canada was seen as a refuge for runaway enslaved individuals, right? When you look at the Underground Railroad, Canada was seen as a safe place for people to go when running and freeing themselves. A Canadian law was thought to somehow be more fair and there was thought to be more equality in Canada. There was a very optimistic mindset of folks who were coming. So now we're going to talk about everything that the Canadian government did to stop black people from entering the country, specifically at this crucial time where there were mass lynchings and mass mobs going on in Oklahoma. So the Canadian government was and continues to this day to be racist, like period, point blank, there's no way around that. If it started from racism, it can't just grow out of racism and be in the same system, not how that works. So when they put out the ads, they wanted white people. They were specifically trying to target people from other countries like Hungary, Romania, Ukraine, and even white people from America who had farming capabilities and could colonize the land further. They did not want black people at all, like did not want them. They were seen as the bottom of the barrel. So as a result of this, there were many racist policies that were made to keep non-black people out of the country while trying to populate the country with whites only, such as the Chinese head tax, Komagata Maru, the proposed ban on black immigration to Canada and the racial segregation of black people. So we're going to get into a little bit more in depth the proposed ban on black immigration to Canada, which was brought forth by the Minister of the Interior at the time. I'm not going to mention his name because I feel like his name is irrelevant. In this, I want you to remember the black people who survived and thrived despite all the obstacles put in their way. So this ban was actually approved by the Prime Minister's cabinet at this time, and the party in power was the Liberal Party. Emphasis on that liberal part, okay? So liberals are not as neutral or in the middle as they seem. They were definitely more right-leaning, and I would say to this day still are definitely more right-leaning. The cabinet had to find a reasonable justification for their racism, and they really thought it made sense as if black people were not already in Canada at this time. And before this, the ban was approved on August 12th of 1911, the intended purpose was to ban black people from entering Canada for a year, specifically any immigrants belonging to the Negro race. It was believed and it was stated multiple times that the Negro race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. I don't know what else to say about that except racism. 
Okay, racism, very blatant racism. The order was set to go through, but on October 5th, 1911, the same cabinet that approved it then repealed it because they claimed that a minister had not been present when the order was approved only two months prior. The real reason they didn't pass it was because they didn't want any smoke from Big Brother America. They did not want any blood or bad beef, and there was a real chance of that happening if they decided to close off their borders specifically to black people. They also did not want to alienate any potential black votes that they would have gotten during that election year. So they started doing more low-key, more hush-hush things to get the results that they wanted and halt black immigration. Canada was also in the middle of a very large trade agreement with the states and, of course, could not lose out on that coin to continue the colonization efforts further on both sides for both Canada and America. Now, the year that this ban was proposed to start was 1911. And if you remember earlier, I was talking about a story of Laura Nelson and how her and her 13-year-old son were lynched in 1911. So they're when doing my research, there weren't any connections to that, but I found that very significant and I found that quite horrific because when all of this is going on in the States and people are trying to flee and make sure that this doesn't also happen to them, the Canadian government thought it would be a great idea to ban black people from coming in. And again, all I have to say about that is racism. Very clearly, very evident. It's racism. So one thing that I have noticed, and many others, of course, who have experienced it, is that Canada is good at what is something often called diplomatic racism, which is just racism hidden behind policies, and it's and those policies are then used as a reasonable justification for said racism. It's the mindset of like, oh, it's not us, we're just following the policies and the protocols and the laws, like you can't get mad at us, but it's like, who made those policies like who made them up you did white people who wanted to build up another white country so it is you making these decisions right right and a prime example of this was on march 21st 1911 there was a party of 200 black folks who had arrived at the manitoba border station and they wanted to continue on to amber valley to meet with their families who had went before them this obviously freaked out the officials because it's like, oh my god, there's so many of them. There's 200. And yet they still could not find one reason to turn anyone away. No one had less than $300 on them, and no one had more money than they were supposed to have either. They all had documented proof of good moral standing, as that was that was one of the requirements for Black people to enter. And they were all in excellent health, so they were subjected to excessive physical testings and somehow managed to pass so they literally had no reason to stop them but looked for every reason and because they couldn't find a reason to justify their racism they had to let these 200 people through so back to the kind racism that canada often portrayed at this time there was also the there was this horrendous belief that black people wouldn't adapt to the cold climate there were actually people going around spreading rumors of there being 20 feet of snow that stayed all year round, which, okay, my God. Um, but for me, it's just like, that doesn't even make sense. So like the enslaved Africans that you brought here to develop the land could survive, but the ones who were fleeing attacks wouldn't? Sounds racist to me. And it's also important to note that they were telling people the opposite 
things that they were telling black people. So they would tell black people, oh, there's 20 feet of snow. It stays all year round. It's a barren Arctic wasteland. Like you do not want to go there. But then telling white people like, it's not even bad. The snow's not even bad. Like it's so good. Everyone's super nice. The vibes are great. So just completely different things being told to different groups of people. They also believed that racial conflicts would become an issue if more black people immigrated as if racial conflicts were not already an issue between the indigenous communities that were being colonized, like their country is still in the process of active colonization. Also, as if enslaved Africans hadn't already been fighting for themselves prior to 1907 when this immigration started. Also, like the racial conflicts wouldn't have been started because of black people. The conflicts would have been started because of racist white people. So it's unfair to then put that on the black folks. Racism definitely just didn't disappear once you crossed the imaginary border that separates the land that was once unified not too long before Amber Valley came to conception. So despite there not being many black immigrants from 1905 onwards in comparison to other populations, white folks already thought there were too many. Like they were freaking out. Once they saw that first train of black people, they're like, yeah, that's enough. We've had enough. So the government and their agents such as the police and the RCMP were set out to stop black migration and stop black people from coming. There was never any legislation that was passed to give them the legal basis to carry this out, but of course, why would that stop them and they don't need the legal basis to do anything because they make up they made up their own laws. So their ultimate mission was to stop black people from entering the country altogether. They would subject black folks to stricter testing regarding their health, financial standing and literacy. There would actually be financial kickbacks given to doctors and agents per black person that they turned away at the border. So they would write it down and get a little extra boost when they finished the day of work. Black people were subjected to the standards of white supremacy. Like, obviously, these were freed slaves. They did not have intergenerational wealth due to land theft and theft of resources. They did not have the same colonial education. They also had to have a minimum of $200 on hand. But the fees could have been waived by officers because they did it all the time for white people. So this was, again, something that was put in specifically to restrict black migration to this area. They also began to limit access to immigration material to black communities. They realized like they really messed up by making the ads so open that black people also thought they were welcome. Now, limiting the access didn't really work because they couldn't retract the information that they had literally paid to put everywhere. There would be tough medical exams at the border as an excuse to turn them back. So, and this was often done so that there could be no accusations of racism flying around. It's like you, again, what I was talking about earlier, where it's like just looking for a, a reason to justify the racism. So then you can't call it racism because they gave you another reason. They gave it something under another name. So you can't call it that. You can't accuse them of that. Another thing that they did to dissuade black folks from leaving the Oklahoma area to um, move to Amber Valley was they sent agents specifically with the task of talking people out of it. And the worst part I think of it is that most of the time they were just being honest about the conditions that black people would actually face. But anyways, it's wild how these jobs were created out of racism and that was just valid and that was okay. But again, they're like, well, we just we just don't think that, that black people will thrive here. So really it's not 
it's not even us like it's it's the land's fault it's the climate's fault like it's not us looking for every excuse to exclude black people once again now one of these agents who is very well documented was a man named gw miller and child the way my blood started boiling when i realized that the canadian government went and found a black man who did not even live in Canada. He lived in Chicago, okay? But he was willing to do this snake work that the government wanted him to do because he was being paid well. But he was a black doctor who was more than okay with going to the Oklahoma area and talking people out of coming to Canada, out of fleeing for their safety. And this just brings me back to the point that when colonization or harmful things are going to be done on behalf of the government most of the time they are going to send people who look like you manipulation coercion and control will be easy it is still a concept actively being used today in terms of politics and political manipulation so gw miller would tell black people that canada was just as bad as america they would have a hard time living there as well They'd face similar acts of violence, racism, prejudice, and segregation, which like all of this is true. It's very true. But what makes this horrible is that they thought that they were telling people lies to dissuade them from making the jump. So as I mentioned before, um, the government would give kickbacks to border patrol agents, right, for the amount of black people that they turned away. And this was a similar system that had worked. So they set it up with G.W. Miller and he would convince right people black people to stay in the oklahoma area and then he would write down the amount of people and he would give extensive reports back to the canadian government in order to get his extra kickbacks now the thing that's very frustrating about this is that in oklahoma a lot of people believed him and they trusted him they trusted him to the point where he was going into these churches on sundays and telling them all about how horrible canada is and how they should never leave and they should never want to go and they should stay where they are despite the possible lynchings that might occur and in these reports that i mentioned before that miller would give over to the canadian government they would give a better idea of which efforts worked to stop migration and which efforts didn't in order to be more successful in not allowing black people into the country. So now we are going to discuss some of the white groups who did everything that they could to also try and halt black migration. So there was specifically an imperialist women's group, which was under the organization name. There was a group under the organization name imperial order daughters of the empire it was a collective of white women which i'm i'm gonna just say it they're old-time karens right they were weaponizing their innocence as white women against black people who they didn't even know who they hadn't met who they'd never encountered but this is a tale as old as time again something that we just see play out in a different cycle right now so on march 31st 1911 this racist group of white women petitioned the minister of the interior demanding that black people stop coming into the area immediately. They should not be allowed. And something they wrote said, we view with alarm the continuous and rapid influx of Negro settlers. Immigration will have the immediate effect of discouraging white settlement in the area of Negro farms and will depreciate the value of holdings in the area. They said stop letting black people in because they're going to lower the property value of this land that we just stole and put some imaginary numbers to it. Okay, cool, great. 
onto the next group. There was the Edmonton Board of Trade, who also sent a petition to the Minister of the Interior saying the exact same thing, and theirs was sent on April 25th, 1911. Direct quote from it said, the serious menace to the future welfare of a large portion of Western Canada by reason of the alarming influx of Negro settlers, warning that more Negro populations would result in bitter race hatred if, if went unchecked. Another quote says directly, these people may be good farmers or citizens. So they're acknowledging that there might not be anything wrong with Black people. Again, this is that friendly, two-sided, backhanded racism that I keep mentioning. It's like, they might be good farmers, they might be good citizens, they might be good people, but they're Black, so no, no, no. Blacks are not wanted. Blacks do not belong here. They will bring down the property value, again, of stolen land, which has imaginary value. They are going to take our jobs, and we don't feel safe. Mind you, literally mind you, all of this is happening in 1911. As I have mentioned, this is when Black people are literally being hunted in the streets, okay? They are being mobbed, they are being lynched, and their dead bodies are being paraded around. And these ignorant colonizers had the nerve to say that Black people were going to come up in Canada and recreate those same problems that they didn't even create in the first place. It's the same tired narrative being spun in a polite way to this day. Like, things have changed, but they have not changed that much. The calls put forward by the Edmonton Board of Trade were immensely supported in the West by other tradespeople. It was specifically endorsed by the trade of Fort Saskatchewan, Strathcona, and Calgary. Now, this petition was signed by over 3,000 white people who lived in Edmonton alone when the population of the city was only 24,000. Okay, racism. A member of Parliament from Ontario asked in a government House of Commons session on April 3rd, 11, if the government would prefer to preserve the Sons of Canada, aka white men and white men only, the lands they proposed to give to niggers. Yeah, he said that. Yeah, I know. I know. He said that in an open session. He said, do you really want to give these niggers this land? It's supposed to be for the Sons of Canada, aka all me and my white homies. Like, I don't really have much to say on this statement, but just how ridiculously dense it is and how and how absolutely atrocious this statement in itself is. Especially because this man was in the House of Commons, so he knew that they didn't even want black people in the first place to come. Now, it's important to note that all of these deterrents and obstacles to stop black migration worked. It 1000% worked. And by 1911, it had come to a screeching halt, which is, again, that year that most of these lynchings and these mob attacks started to occur and make their way into the general knowledge of the public because obviously these things were always happening and they were always happening in Canada as well but 1911 is when it really started to boom and started to become known both across Canada and America how at risk black folks were specifically in Oklahoma. Now this makes me wonder how many lynchings occurred south of the border due to the actions of the Canadian government. That's a lot of blood on their hands. It's a lot more than they'd ever care to admit. But despite all of this, all of this, somehow Black people still managed to make it past the border and build the best lives possible for themselves and their families in the face of adversity and oppression. 
Amber Valley was one of the most durable communities. It survived the Great Depression and World War II, or, and it continued to be an important hub for Black settlement in the province throughout the Great Depression and World War II. Okay, so who lived in Amber Valley, right? Like, we keep talking about all the things that the Canadian government did to try and stop them, but what was this town like once Black people kind of got their community set up? So, as I mentioned, it was, of course, folks who were seeking to start their own lives after generations of freedom being taken from them. I would really like you to remember the names of the Black folks who preserved, succeeded, pushed through, and found happiness and built community in any way they could and paved the way for a lot of us today rather than the crusty colonizers who inflicted harm upon said folks. So this was a great community. They built an all-Black school and non-denominational church in 1913. There was a post office built in 1931, and there was a baseball team in 1914. So Martha Edwards and her husband, Jefferson J.D. Edwards, were two of the first to move into the area in 1910. They ultimately got married in Amber Valley and raised 10 children there. J.D. would go on to be extremely involved not only in his community directly, but throughout the Black community in the area. Jean and Willis Bowen and their children also hailed from Oklahoma, um, such as Martha and her husband. Their but with Jean and Willis's lineage, it can be traced to a plantation in Alabama where their enslavement occurred for generations. Willis organized a group of five families who went to Vancouver and then later on went to Amber Valley. So in 1909, they lived in Vancouver, like I mentioned, and but a few years later, they decided to relocate to the growing Black community in the Amber Valley area in 1912. Willis would go on to work varying different jobs such as working on a ranch, a grain farm, and hauling freight. One of their sons, Obadiah, became a community pastor who worked in the mines as well and he was also building roads and railways. He would later go on to marry Eva and raise his family in Amber Valley as well and he continued to work his father's homestead which is still preserved to this day and goes by the name Obadiah's Place but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, Parson Henry Sneed, who is a clergyman and a mason, he is the one who really, really paved the way for Amber Valley to become the thriving community that it was. He was the first to come and scope out the land prior to heading back to Oklahoma to share the news of Alberta and the Canadian prairies before returning to live there himself. He played such an important role as to why large groups of black folks from the area decided to migrate north to Amber Valley. He led a group of black folks to their new lives and he's really instrumental in the construction of this community. Now Stella and John King also live there and they are the parents of, of Violet King Henry. Now there's also Balua and Samuel Carothers who were the first black family in Alberta to operate a post office and they also ran the town's blacksmith shop and general store. So all amazing people, all very instrumental and definitely remember those names. Now as you can probably guess, even though black these black folks somehow managed to enter the country despite the government doing everything they can to politely and not so politely keep them out, there were obviously challenges that arose. One of the biggest challenges was that the Amber Valley area, which is where they were told to locate, 
had low quality land. They weren't being met with the picture perfect farming land that had been advertised in all of the ads and that a lot of other white folks had been receiving. They were met with swampy land. It had major bug infestations and it was not habitable at all. A lot of the land that was actually in this Amber Valley area had been abandoned by folks who had purchased land claims on it. And then they left. Like they got there, they saw it, they're like, hell no, we are not doing this. Are you for real? And they got out of the prairies. Now, a lot of these black folks were happy to own a piece of land and they were obviously frustrated by the lies that they had been told, but they were still optimistic to have a chance at the life in which the ads had promised. Now, in most cases, it took two to three years to work the land in order for it to be in a state for farming to occur. And so, of course, other jobs would have to be found in this time. So, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the men would do freight hauling, lumber yards, and seasonal work. But many also began to open their own businesses in order to sustain themselves, their communities, and their families. Now, the one thing that I found kind of very, I like, I couldn't imagine it. Like, I'm from Winnipeg, right? So the winters are terrible, like terrible, 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 like minus 30, minus 40, minus 50 sometimes with the wind chill. So a lot of these families had to build their own homes, right? So they, and a lot of them didn't come with very much money. And they were also so far away from the bigger cities. They were quite isolated. So many families actually spent their first winter in tents, because they did not have the ability to build structures or the finances or anything like that. So they spent their winter in tents and that must have been horrific. It must have been so cold and so uncomfortable, but still they persevered. Okay, so now let's get into some more about the community. It truly thrived from 1910 to the 1940s. One thing that I loved when learning about this area is that women really ran the town and they played such a key role in the success of the community. They were midwives and traveled throughout northern Alberta, not just only staying in the Amber Valley area, but just going wherever they were needed to save countless lives of both the mothers and the children being delivered. They also ran the local grocery store. As I mentioned before, there was an all-black school. It was named the Tolls School, which opened in 1913, and it acted as a place of beginnings for all residents. It was named after Nimrod Tolls, and the education at the school went up to grade 8, but as I stated, it served as more than just a school. It acted as a hub for all sorts of education and all sorts of beginnings. One thing that I found really adorable was that the like the kids who were in school they would have gospel music recitals and everyone in the town would come and watch at the school i just thought this was like the image of this was just adorable to me also as i mentioned before they had a baseball team and this team was really really good they traveled from town to town and played against white teams of course and the uniforms were again made by the wonderful women in the community just supporting in any way that they can doing everything that they can love that love that but like i was saying the team was formed by jd edwards and his son kenny was their star pitcher the team acted as ambassadors of the black community throughout alberta which i thought was quite unfair and it placed additional pressure on black folks who were literally just trying to live their lives and be themselves like just kind of unfair also 
a little bit redundant to see how popular this team was amongst the white community because folks did not want black people to come. They went to extensive measures to keep them out, but they were totally comfortable and totally okay with going to watch them play sports. It didn't sit right with me when I was doing my research and it still doesn't sit right with me as I'm recording this. Not to go on too much of a tangent, but this is the mindset a lot of people still have to this day, right? Like they're uncomfortable around black people. They'll cross the street so they don't have to walk by a black person or they'll clutch their purse closer. Like we're the ones who've stolen land and people and resources and artifacts and heirlooms. Like we did that. They won't want their children or their close family members to date black people, but they will love to see black people dance and perform for their entertainment. They will love to go to their concerts, hear them sing, basically just entertain them or they'll or profit off of black people. And I'm not with it. So if you find yourself doing this, take the time to go and unpack your anti-blackness because I don't have time to do that for you, but you need to be checked. So now what ended up happening to Amber Valley? Well, basically, the isolation from bigger cities was not something that the children of the original, that the original Amber Valley residents wanted or desired. Many moved to larger nearby cities such as Edmonton, Winnipeg, or Saskatchewan in search of better job opportunities. They also did not feel like dealing with the extremely difficult terrain that constantly had to be tended to by community members. It wasn't like the cities where the infrastructure was already created and taken care of. Like when Am- when residents first went to Amber Valley, there wasn't even a road for them to get there. But to this day, there are some families who remain in that area. The community hall remains. There is a small museum with a lovely mural of previous residents painted on the side. And Obadiah's place still remains standing. So that was, I mentioned before, about a little bit about Obadiah's place. Obadiah was the son of Jean and Willis Bowen, and so I think it's lovely that it's named after him because he was the one to tend to it after his family passed, but it's still there. It's still standing to this day. It is a one-story home with four farm buildings and a phone booth on the Obadiah Bowen farm. It retains most, if not all, of the features from when it was first built. It is the oldest structure in the community and it's amazing that it's still standing to this day so people you can go and you can take a look you can visit the area Um, also because of its size it acted as a hub for social gatherings and community get-togethers so it's so it feels really full circle and really complete that this is the oldest structure in the community still standing and it acted as a place for social gatherings and community get-togethers and it can now still act as such when people go and visit the area. So Gilbert Williams still remains in the area and gives tours of what remains and he takes great pride in doing so. He also aids in maintaining the museum and he lives just outside of Amber Valley to this day. In an interview given with Global News, he states, History is important. History is a way of teaching. The more we learn, the less likely we are to make mistakes of the past. So now we have come to the point of the podcast where we discuss my thoughts. 
I thought that I knew a lot of Black Canadian history and I had never heard of Amber Valley before I had started to do this research. And so it felt super important to share this story. Like Gilbert said, history is important. The more that we learn the history, the less likely we are to repeat those same mistakes. And I feel like a lot of the I can't even call them mistakes because they weren't mistakes. It was intentional actions that the government took to keep black people out are still the same kind of methods which are being used to oppress and undermine black people and black beliefs and black authority. Something that I loved about researching this was how black people, despite all of the obstacles that are constantly put in our way, the Amber Valley community still found a way to thrive and be successful on their own. They did not want to depend on other communities or on the government who did not even want them there. They were determined to become self-reliant and independent and do the best for their community in any way that they knew how. There were no limitations to what they could do or what they could or could not accomplish. They set none of those boundaries or limitations on their kids. It was like, oh, you guys want to play baseball? We'll make a baseball team and we'll even make your uniforms. Bam, most successful baseball team in the whole province, right? Like, oh, we need to educate our children because they're not welcome in other schools. And also, how are we going to get them there because we're so far isolated? Bam, we'll build a school and we'll teach black education and we'll teach black history and we'll even throw in some little gospel concerts for the community. Love it. I just love the sense of community that the Amber Valley area had. And it's a shame that this is not taught more it's intentional why it's not taught more because there are as I there's literally like so many things that the government did intentionally to try and stop black people from existing and having a chance at a peaceful life. And so it makes sense why it's not taught, why it's kept a secret, but it doesn't need to be a secret anymore. Once the pandemic has kind of come to a halt or it is safe to travel again and be out again, I really do recommend that you go to the Amber Valley area and you get a tour from Gilbert Williams. Like the things that you could learn from him because of his knowledge, because of his father's knowledge, because of the fact that he grew up in the area. There's so many things and it's it's so important to learn this history and continue to support the black folks who have been doing the work and he's been doing the work. There is also a documentary put out about the Amber Valley community and I will leave a link to that in the description but definitely check that out. Definitely share this story and tell more people about it because it does not get talked about at all. The covert racism of the Canadian government still ongoing has not changed very much in terms of the way that they approach situations and so I think that needs to be discussed as well. This case and the other cases focused on Canadian Black history or history in so-called Canada. It really shows why it's not in the curriculum. It shows why it's not taught because the government would have a lot of explaining to do and a lot of apologizing to do and a lot of reparations to hand out. Okay, because this is only the first, the first that we are discussing and there were literally like over 20 points of specifically how the government tried to target black folks and keep them out of the country. I hate that black people have to be so resilient and have to go through so much just to have a fighting chance at living a happy, peaceful life. 
it's not okay and things have to change going forward because these things are still occurring just in a different more modern way I thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we discussed the community of Amber Valley, its residents, those who lived there and thrived, and as well as all the messed up things that the Canadian government did and said to keep Black people out of the West. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.